Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 128 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 24th of August 2014, entitled The Genesis Account, Part 5, and the Bible readings are taken from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, and Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, to chapter 2, verse 17. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. would like to take a reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6, the last two verses in this letter, verses 20 and 21, as we remind ourselves, today is uh, part five in our series on the Genesis account, and I've lost total track of numbers, you know, somewhere way up in the 150 or 60 or something like that in our series on contending for the faith. I'll have to look and see what number it is. Uh, but one of the fundamental truths of Scripture that uh, we are taught to contend for, and of course, as we look into the book of Genesis, probably one of the uh, most debated books in all of the Word of God, uh, Paul writing to, uh, to young Timothy, First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's holy Word. Paul writes, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. And as we look into Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. God said, behold, I've given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed to you. It shall be for meat to every beast of the earth and to every fowl of the air and to every thing that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life. I've given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. From thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first was Pison, and that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedellum and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hidekel, and that is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, 
thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we have to look into your word again this morning. Thank you for this place that we've been blessed with to meet in. Father, even as we gather here today, we know the church is not the building, but it's the people that are gathered. We thank you, Lord, that as we gather as people that we can have absolute assurance of knowing that you are in our midst because you live and dwell within each and every one of your children. Thank you for your word that you have preserved for us, that we have before us, that we can read before ourselves here today. And thank you for your Holy Spirit that lives within us, that will give us the understanding that we need. And Father, as we come into this time of worship, we do pray with all of our hearts, Lord, that everything we say and everything we do will bring glory and honor to you, that you would be pleased with it, that it would be according to your perfect will. And Father, as we're gathered here, you know the hearts of each and every individual. You know the needs of every person that is here today, and we fully realize so very much that, Lord, in our frailness of humanity, that we are not able to meet those needs today. We have absolute faith and confidence that you can meet those needs. You can not only see into that heart, but you can reach into that heart, and you can touch those hearts, and you can speak to those hearts. And so, Father, whatever the needs are here today, we pray that they would be met through you. If there be any that don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, Lord, may you simply speak to their hearts as only you can. Melt those hearts of stone if they're hardened. Draw them to yourself today that they might come to recognize, to realize the precious love that you've loved them with. Father, if there is a child of yours, a Christian that is here today that is walking afar off or has having their particular struggles at this time, or maybe, Lord, they're just carrying a heavy burden, whatever that it might be, we pray that you would speak as only you can and meet those needs. Father, we pray that in everything that we do, Lord, that you would receive the glory and the honor. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, as I stated, this is the fifth in the series on the Genesis account. We've looked at many, many things in the first four sermons. We said that those really deep, important, troubling questions that most all of humankind would like to answer is on the first part, where did we come from? How did all of this begin? And secondly, where are we going? How is it all going to finish in the end? We began by, of course, looking at the fact that just as Paul was writing to young Timothy, that there is much of science, and of course the word science comes from the root of knowledge. It's supposed to be knowledge, but the Bible says there's much science, much knowledge that is falsely so-called that would lead us away from the truth, but that we need to stand upon those truths that he has given us. I've stated unashamedly that I believe the Genesis account is foundational to the Christian faith. And we've looked at a number of those things and we continue to look and we said that though some people shy away from the word creation, they may prefer to call themselves something else, an evolutionist or whatever. But the truth is, is that everybody in some shape or form is actually a creationist. It's just that they believe the way that it started was different. There's really only two things to accept, and one is either what science so-called, falsely so-called, would call evolution and those things spontaneous creation. In other words, it all had to start somewhere. But was it spontaneously created of itself from nothing? Just We looked at many of those different things that science would say that it came from, but basically they believe that life either began on its own out of a lot of things that were going on, or they believe in a supernatural creation, that somebody designed it, somebody planned it, somebody did it. And of course, we talked many different things concerning that. And then we looked as we began to move forward into our uh, scriptures in a more specific way. We began by looking, first of all, that really the Genesis account is so foundational in so many things because it is the very foundation for the authority of God's Word. We either believe and accept it as God's Word or we don't. 
We looked at a lot of things, but bottom line, folks, you can't pick and choose. I made a very simple statement that if the Bible is authoritative at all, it is authoritative in all. You can't take that it's part truth and part false. If it's, if it's the authority of God's word, then we take it, we believe it, we accept it for what it says. When we understand it, when we don't understand it. Many times in our finite minds, some of these things, we're trying to make it fit in with our way of thinking, but the Bible says that God's thinking is far above our thinking. So we said that if we do not accept the Genesis account for what it is, we tear away the foundation of the authority of God's word. We may as well throw away our Bibles, and therefore we have no Christian faith if we have no authority from God and we have to base it upon man. Second, we talked about it's foundational to the very assertion of God's existence. One of those tremendous, does a God exist? Is there? Is there someone out there? that is in control of all this, that began it all. And of course, the very first four words that we find in the book of beginnings and the book of Genesis, in the beginning, God. He was there. He exists. And we looked at a number of things, but the Genesis account, it is very foundational to the very authority of God's word. We either accept it or we don't. And then we looked, lastly, at the absoluteness of God's creation. Preacher, you just used that A because you needed another A. No, I used absolution very, very, very carefully when I thought of this word absoluteness. You can look it up in your dictionary. It's quite amazing. It says that it literally means to be free from imperfection, to be complete, to not be mixed or adulterated with anything else outright. We said that we believe that as we look through the Word of God, that the book of Genesis, the Genesis account lays that very foundation for the absoluteness. We talked about all those things, everything. When God created it, it was perfect. It wasn't mixed with any error. It wasn't mixed with anything that was wrong. He created it in all of its perfect, and it was complete when he finished. We just read those passages of verses there again at the close of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter uh, 2 when he rested, and that wasn't because he was tired. That word literally means that he ceased. He ceased from what he was doing because it said that everything that he had done, it was complete and it was perfect. And I want us to move on today to a third thought. And of course, I believe that, again, we must keep in mind our verse in Psalm, 100 and, or Psalm 11, verse 3 which is on the screen before you, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Anything that is built, if it's built on a bad foundation, it's not going to withstand when the storms come, when the pressures come, when the things come against it. It must be solidly grounded. Now, if the book of Genesis, if it only laid the foundations for these Three vital doctrines that we've looked at, the authority of God's word, the assertion of God's existence, and the absoluteness of God's creation. If that alone, that would be sufficient to show us the fundamental importance of the Genesis account. In fact, if these foundational truths are removed, then nothing else that I say really matters. You may as well either go to sleep or put your earplugs in or go home and, 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 and watch TV or something. Because if we can't accept those first three, it doesn't matter what else I said. If we can't accept the authority of God's word and that God's there and that he created everything that exists and sustains it, then where else can we go from there? The first step in any human being if he is going to have any kind of a relationship with God, if he's going to even begin to resolve those questions of where we came from and where we're going, then it must begin first of all and foremost with God's existence. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. And notice what he goes on to say, for he that cometh to God 
must believe that he is. If we're going to come to God, if we're going to have any kind of an understanding of God, if we're going to have a relationship with God, first of all, the first step is that we must believe that he is, that he exists, and secondly, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That if he is there, and that if we genuinely want to find him, we can and we will. You see, coming to God begins with simple faith. Faith of believing, first of all, that he's there, that he can be found, that he has himself told us that, how we can find him, of how we can communicate with him. But of course, even nature itself, as we look around us, when it is honestly examined, that alone should resolve the matter of existence. As a matter of fact, the Bible, if we have accepted its authority, as we've already talked about, it communicates to us very, very clearly concerning that matter. Look with me, if you would, into the book of Romans chapter 1. And here under inspiration as the Apostle Paul was writing to the Christians at Rome. Let's pick up in verse, uh, verse 18. And he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, notice what he's saying. That the wrath of God is revealed from the heavens itself, from nature itself out there, against the ungodliness and the unrighteous. Why? He says, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. In other words, you'll be judged of God because nature itself should tell you that God's there. For God hath showed it unto them, he says. Verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, that's us, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. We, the created, should be able to look at creation itself and know that God is there. And that in itself is enough to bring judgment because if we believe that he is, only then will we seek for him. He goes on to say in verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. I'm saying today, folks, and I don't mean it in a rude way, it's not evolution that's the problem, it's devolution that's the problem. The Bible says when that which was created, when you and I could even look at creation and know that God exists and we knew who he was, we start looking for other answers. And they're vain imaginations. We begin not to increase. And many times I fully understand. I know what it's like for someone out there to try to make you feel like a fool because you believe God's word. They want you to be a, feel like a, a simpleton that you don't have any education, that you don't have any knowledge. We go through it over and over and over again. Man thinks he's becoming so wise when all along he's moving farther away from God and becoming more like the animal life itself that is out there when man was created, as we'll see, so different from all the rest of creation. So preacher, what are you saying? I'm saying that the foundational truth is that even if you didn't have the Bible, even if you didn't have me standing here shouting at you this morning, if you had nobody to tell you, the Bible says you ought to be able to look at creation honestly and know that. Can you imagine the odds of one simple form of life ever coming into existence of its own, 
with no outside planning, no outside doing, no outside power whatsoever of that one simple form of life coming into being. And yet you look around you at the thousands of different forms of life and believe that they all just happened to happen of themselves. In the end, that's what they would have us to believe. And God says, when you thought you were becoming wise, you were becoming fools for thinking in such ways. Of course, you haven't accepted the existence of your Creator. You haven't accepted the authority of His Word that He's communicated to us and preserved for all these thousands of years, then there's no way by faith that you're going to seek Him if you don't believe Him and you don't believe His Word. You're never going to seek to find Him. You'll be like one of those that we're reading about here, the book of Romans, that in their vain imaginations, by your own choice, a foolish choice, the Bible says, you will experience, as he said there, the wrath of God against your unrighteousness, not because he wants to. We must understand that, but because you choose so. You are without excuse. You will either believe or not believe. It is your choice. God has clearly shown it to you in all of creation, and God has clearly spoken it to you through his word. It is your choice whether you choose to believe it or to disbelieve it. You see, it doesn't really end there. These important foundations are are not all that is being laid here. There are others that of absolute necessity are tied together. It's like when you begin building any structure and you lay that foundation. There are things that are anchored to it, things that are fastened to it, things that when you affect one, you affect them all. So as we continue to, to look here this morning, we find that I want you to realize, first of all, that keeping those things in mind, that it's here in the book of Genesis, in the Genesis account, that we also see the very foundation for the advancement of the human race. You know, if God is responsible for creating that first man, Adam, and that first woman, Eve, if that was in the beginning, right there in the Garden of Eden, some 6,000 plus years ago, where does the human race as a whole, the millions and billions of people that have come since, where do they fit into that? Well, I'll take you back to our reading, first of all, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. That verse begins after the creating of Adam and Eve, says, and God blessed them. And then notice what God said to them. And God said unto them, who? Unto Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. You see, the Genesis account declares that not only that God created Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, but that the entire human race came from Adam. Adam and Eve is God's first creation of human beings. God gave them the responsibility to be fruitful, to multiply, and to replenish the earth. They did precisely as God instructed them to do. If you look just a, probably a page over in your Bible, maybe two pages in Genesis uh, chapter 4, notice what it says there in those first two verses. And Adam knew Eve, his wife. We've talked about that word before. That's God's beautiful thing. That's where Adam knew his wife. They came together as God meant for husband and wife alone to come. Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. She knew where that life came from. You know, one of the most amazing things 
Now that God is responsible for all creation, from all life, but as we see in everything, that life produces more life, produces more life. It all comes from God. But every human being is a unique, a unique human being. They are who they are because of God's creation, because of that phenomenal thing that takes place. You know, I thank God for all six of our children. You know, there is absolutely no way in the world that any one of them could be who they are except through my wife and I. And you're the same way. You're created, yes, by God. But God did that through that wonderful thing that took place. It says in verse 2, And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. I'm saying that the advancement of the human race began with Adam and Eve. It is in the Genesis account that that foundation is laid and that we are shown that God created the first man and the first woman, and God instructed that first man and that first woman to be fruitful, to replenish the earth, to multiply, and they did that. And you see, in the end, we are all, regardless of where we come from on the face of planet earth, regardless of what color our skin might be or what language we might speak, regardless of our cultures and our backgrounds and all of that, we are all one seed. We are all the race of Adam. And that foundational truth, that is vital in understanding many of the teachings and the doctrines that will follow in the Word of God. If we came from anywhere besides that first man, Adam, then I'm saying to you that many of the essential doctrines of Scripture that we'll look at, even the doctrine of atonement itself, it will crumble before our eyes. Why does Satan like to attack the Genesis account so much? Because he can undermine and take away the foundations of many more spiritual truths that are built upon those truths. I say to you again, it is absolutely fundamental to our Christian faith. The authority of God's word, the assertion of God's existence, the absoluteness of God's creation, the advancement of the human race as God planned it. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? It is here in the Genesis account that we not only find the advancement of the human race, but also the accountability of mankind. That's a word that a lot of people get nervous about. People don't like to have to be accountable. But notice what it continues in that verse. And God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. But then he goes on to say, and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. God gives man specific responsibilities. And of course, along with that comes that requirement of obedience. If somebody says something to them, if they give you instructions, if they give you a command, you can either obey or you can disobey the man and the woman. And yes, later they're offspring of that same seed. They are personally responsible. First of all, for the advancement of the human race, as we saw, they were told to be fruitful, to multiply, to replenish the earth. And so we rec recognize that it was their responsibility to do that. But not only were they to replenish the earth, secondly, it's that they were to subdue the earth. What does it mean to subdue something? To subdue something is to have it under your control. They were to take control. They were being held accountable to control this earth, that it be used for what God desired for the human use and for God's glory. So they're being held accountable, not only for the advancement of the human race, but they're being held responsible to subdue the earth, to take control of it. And he says to have dominion over all the earth and everything that is upon the earth. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Everything else that it created, all of their life, 
You see, man, being made in God's image, was now being given the responsibility of being God's representative here upon this earth to rule over God's creation. Why? The uniqueness of man in creation, his position above everything else is all being clearly shown to us here, but also his greater responsibility to rule over it. So he's got to replenish it. He's got to subdue it. He's got to rule over it. But there's some other things God told him to do. He was to care for it as well. Along with that responsibility to rule it, he was being held accountable for its care. In chapter 2, we read that. He said there, beginning in verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and he put a man there whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the side and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he goes through and he talks about all of the, the, the rivers and whatnot. And then he says down in verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. God, he gave man everything that he needed in creation, but he also gave him the responsibility to take care of it. Now, I think it's important here also to note that, folks, this is before the fall. This is God formed man from the dust of the ground. God breathed into him. God made him a, a living soul. He made him unique of all of creation. And he put him there in his creation. And he asked him to take care of it. He asked him to care for it. You see, there's no doubt that it gets harder after the fall and the thorns and thistles and everything else that become a part of it. But even here in the Garden of Eden, in God's perfection, in this perfect and sinless society, the only one this ever existed on planet Earth, work was an important part of what God planned. That work, that dignity of man's responsibilities in re representing and serving God. God created everything that is. He gave it to man, but he said, man, you are responsible to take care of it. And man there in the garden was responsible to care for God's creation then notice in verse 16 and 17, the next two verses, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Man is being held accountable. Responsibilities are being given. Yes, to replenish the earth, to subdue the earth, to have dominion over the earth to care for God's creation, but here to be obedient to God's commands. The timing of everything here in Genesis sometimes can, can be hard for us to get our hands on because God begins with an overall view of creation. Then he comes back and he, and he starts giving us more of the fine details and everything, the exact timing of all of it. But I honestly believe that when we look through the Word of God, as far as I can tell, this is the first command that is ever given to God or given to man by God. Without any doubt, it's the very first prohibition given to man. As God places him in the garden, he gives him a number of things that he is to do that we've just got through looking at. He gave him those responsibilities. These are things that you are to do, but then he gives him this one that he's not to do. It's also here in verse 17. But not only does he give him this specific command, he said there, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. You see, that's the first place. I mean, man's been created. He hasn't failed yet. 
But God has already warned him beforehand of the consequences of disobedience, of the consequences of sin. God created everything that is from nothing. And in his greatest act of creation, he records for us in Genesis 1, 26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In chapter 2, verse 7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. After creating man in his own image, after giving to him everything that he needs, God gave him specific instructions and responsibilities for both the continuance of his creation, the advancement of the human race, if you would, and the care of that creation, the accountability that was placed upon mankind. Of course, being created in the image of God, man wasn't created as a robot. He wasn't created as some great advanced computer. God could easily have done that without a thought, and it would have been a whole lot easier. God made him, first of all, in his own image. Man alone was made a living soul. There was much life created, but man alone was given that distinction. He was made as a free moral agent with choices to make. God said, this is what I want you to do. Man could either obey and experience all the glorious blessings that would be his, or he could disobey and suffer the consequences, which he says clearly, thou shalt surely die. He could believe God by faith, and he could experience life he could disbelieve, and in his unbelief, he could experience death. But folks, we need to remember, as we've seen, we are all united in the seed of Adam. And every one of us has the same choice today. I'm saying to you that because of these foundational truths, you have the same choice that Adam did. What truths? The authority of God's Word. The assertion of God's existence, the absoluteness of God's creation, the advancement of the human race and the accountability of mankind, you have the same choice that he gave Adam right here in the garden. It was the same choice that the Apostle Paul pointed out to the Greeks on Mars Hill. Look with me in Acts chapter 17. This message wouldn't even make any sense without its foundation in the book of Genesis. Paul, it says here, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 17, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Whereas I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And therefore ye ignorantly worship him, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood, all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and have determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord. If haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being as certain also as our own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone, 
graven by art and man's device. The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man, Jesus, whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. Your assurance is that Jesus Christ overcame death. He was raised from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, We'll hear thee again soon of this month. In other words, they heard the simple truths that we've just heard, that we've just seen founded in the book of Genesis. As Paul declared that simple message to them, some of them just made fun of it. Some of them said, I'll think about this stuff later. Not right now. So Paul departed from among them. How be it, he says in verse 34, certain men clave unto him and believe among the which was Dionysus, and Arapagite, and a woman called Damaris, and others with them. Some believed. Most didn't. It's the same message that is relevant to us today. You see, we will look at some foundational truths later concerning man's fall and the atonement of sin and some of those things in, in verses that are still before us. But I think it's fitting that I close this morning with this reminder. Adam had a choice. Today, you have a choice. The Greeks in Athens on Mars Hill, they had a choice. We see them making different choices. But you have the same choice today. You know what? There's nobody else in all the world that can make that choice for you. Only you can make it. But it is a choice that you must make, and it's a choice that you will make. There is no way of getting around it before you walk out those doors today. You will either believe or unbelieve. You will choose to accept it, or you will choose to reject it. That is your choice. God gave you that choice. We can't and wouldn't do anything about it of our power. But you must recognize that the choice that you make is very clearly shown to us, just as in the garden he said to Adam, if you eat this fruit, you will surely die. God makes it very clear. I want to read a couple of passages to you from the book of Romans. First of all, in Romans chapter 3, and I ask you just to listen very, very carefully. In Romans chapter 3, it begins in verse 19. It says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them which are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. In other words, God's laws never saved anybody, and he goes on to say that. God tells you what he tells you so that you can know the truth, so that you can recognize your guilt. And so God says that to you so that every mouth, nobody has a reason not to believe it, that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. It can only tell you that you are a sinner. But now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. Well, there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, that phenomenal word, you know I love that word. I mean to meet every requirement that was possible. God was your propitiation, Jesus Christ. When he died upon the cross, he did everything that was required. 
redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, in the blood of Jesus, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. God will see you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ by your faith in his shed blood. God will forget about your sin. He'll see you in the righteousness of Christ. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. He wouldn't be much of a fair God if he just simply, well, that sin's not that bad, or this one will pass. This one is guilty, but this one that did the same thing. The Bible says if you've offended in one part, you've offended in all. Turn just a couple of pages over. Our time is gone this morning. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 9, he says, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. We didn't have any strength, any hope, anything we could do for ourselves. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. In the very next chapter in Romans chapter 6, in verse 23, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. What was that back there in the garden before man had ever committed any sin? If you do this, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. There is no other way that can be, but thank God. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God said, Adam, if you do this, you will surely die. But God, knowing, says he sent his son, Jesus, to be a propitiation, to pay everything that was due for your sin. Because your sin can only bring death. There is nothing else it can bring. But God wants to give you the free gift of salvation. And the way that you receive that gift is by believing, by believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that his blood was shed for your sins, that he paid the price so that you wouldn't have to. And he goes on in Romans chapter 10 and verse 8. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee. The word, listen. The word is near you, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. I'm telling you this morning, you make a choice. You'll believe or, believe, or, or, or not believe. You'll accept, you'll reject. But the word is near. The truth is near. But what will you do with it? He says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Well, the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. There's no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Folks, the Genesis account will see it is foundational to our faith. God does exist. God has communicated to us his word. Not the, It's not man's knowledge. It's God's knowledge. The truth is, is that right here today, though, we're accountable for what we do to it, with what we, for what we do with it. We're accountable for the choice that we make. He said, the word is near to you, even in your heart. But will you believe it or will you not? Well, there's much more foundational in Genesis, but I want you to realize that God's word it's a sure foundation. And that word, that sure foundation, tells us very clearly that Jesus died on the cross for you. If you sin, 
you'll surely die. The wages of sin is death. But today the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, time is against us again, and we've run out of time this morning. And Lord, you know that I love your word so much. I, I was thinking earlier today that it's absolutely amazing that over a lifetime and thousands of sermons that have been prepared week after week after week, and yet I still get so excited just to sit down and to open your word and to, and to reread it and to see what it's saying, and it's always speaking something fresh, something vibrant. There's no other book like it in all the world. Lord, I get excited about just the opportunity. I know that I'm a frail person with many failings, but your word is pure. And it's your spirit that is the power. And I pray today not for anyone here or anyone that may listen later. I I pray not that they would hear my words. I pray that your word would be near to them. I pray that you would speak to their hearts as only you can. Father, I, I can speak to their ears, but only you can speak to the heart. Lord, you know my heart. For each one that is here today, you know their needs. These foundations are vital, but they're there for a reason, Lord. When you created us perfect in the garden, you knew we would fail. You said that before the foundation of the world, you'd already planned our redemption in Jesus Christ. You loved us that much. And for each one here today, Lord, it's not your will that any should perish. You've called them to repentance. You've asked them to accept the free gift just to believe, to trust. Father, today all they have to do is humble themselves, seek that forgiveness that you will give based upon their faith and belief in Jesus Christ and his finished work on Calvary. Father, I pray now that as we sing our closing hymn, that if there are hearts here that need to do business with you, Lord, I pray that you'd help them not to procrastinate, not to put off to tomorrow. Lord, they will make a choice right now, just as those did in Athens. Some believed, some mocked, some decided they'd deal with it later. I pray that today that you'd help them, help them to swallow their pride, help them to break down whatever barriers are in the way, Help them to simply trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work on Calvary. For it's in Christ's name we pray.